Well, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to our two fabulous co-hosts today. I think they're going to be a powerful duo, Dr. Wes and Megan Rawlings, and they're going to introduce just one of um, our favorite friends at the Solomon Foundation. Uh, Steve Cuss is with us today. So thankful to have you, Steve, and so excited to, to hear what you have to share. First off, Frank, um, I think you're going to be just a dandy president, so I'm excited you got that. Guys, you all know Kathy Lee and Regis, or Regis and Kathy Lee. Well, we're Dr. Wes and that other girl, and uh, we're super excited. Um, and we have a fantastic guest today, don't we, Dr. Wes? Well, Megan, before we get there, how was your weekend? Oh, I, I read this article once. No, I'm just, we won't Just kidding. Let's get, to, <laughs> let's get to the awesome Steve Cuss. Yes, I'm so excited for Steve, and I'm going to tell you guys why. Hey, before, I, we, before we get into that, how is it that Frank changed so quickly? That's, that's like a miracle. He was in a bow tie, and like in a flash, he's now in a cardigan. Oh, the, whoa, Frank. <laughs> okay, it's all right. I'm all right. I'll be fine. Well, I'm so excited to have Steve on. Um, I used to work at Kentucky Christian University before coming to the Solomon Foundation, and it was a 45-minute commute for me. And so I would often listen to podcasts or books. And so I was listening on a whim to this podcast by a guy named Carrie Newhoff. And he had this uh, Steve Cuss guy, and I was like, man, what a last name. I got to listen to that. And so I did, and the interview was great. And I was like, man, I'm going to read that guy's book. And so I went on ahead and turned on the audiobook and in his book he talked about the restoration movement and I was like oh my gosh and so I texted Renee and I was like you got to get this guy he's so cool and she was like oh yeah he'll be in Hawaii and I was like oh my gosh I'm gonna meet him and it was like a celebrity right and so I was all excited so I get on the plane okay I kid you not this is real life this really happened I get on the plane to go to Hawaii guess who's sitting behind me the Steve Cuss. And I know it's him because I Googled him. So I know what he looked like in Hawaii. And he had the Australian accent. How many Australians are going to be on a flight to Hawaii from Denver, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm all geeked. And I'm like, Matt, 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 that's Steve Cuss. And he was like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't embarrass me. Don't do it. I said, okay, I won't do it. So then I absolutely did it. I waited until Matt fell asleep and Matt was asleep and I made sure of it. I did like the little push to make sure he wouldn't wake up. Steve stands up to use the restroom and I happen to be right beside the bathroom. And so I lean up and I said, I read your book. And he just looked at me very confused. Like, first of all, freak. Second of all, he looked at me and he said, how did you know I wrote a book? And I very said, oh, I say that. Experience. Very <laughs> creepy experience. <laughs> I said, oh, I say that to everyone who uses the restroom. I'm just glad it stuck this time. I'm just kidding. I was not that witty. I was so like, oh gosh, how do I say I Google stalked you? Um, I said, uh, I could just tell because I did the audiobook and you had the same voice, which was the lamest thing I've ever said in my life. But nonetheless, I was like, I'm just going to avoid this guy in Hawaii because now I'm embarrassed because I look like a fangirl and my husband's going to die when he wakes up and I tell him the story. So we get to Hawaii and Steve Cuss and his beautiful wife sit at my table for dinner. And I wanted to crawl under the table because I wasn't actually going to tell my husband what happened. But then I had to tell him what happened. So it was a fantastic um, introduction to Steve. He was very kind and gracious to me. Then he tells me about his podcast. 
that he has. And I'm so excited. And Renee goes, oh, Megan has a podcast. And he goes, oh, it's so nice to meet a fellow podcaster who doesn't do it just once every blue moon and then quit after six episodes. Mind you, I had not done an episode of my podcast for nearly eight months. So then I double wanted to crawl under the table, but I'm going to go ahead and let's just interview this guy who is so much cooler than I am. So are you ready, Dr. West? Absolutely, Megan. Uh, I'm, I'm just proud that uh, Steve made it off the island, the, uh, uh, the, the great uh, modern day prison camp also known as Australia. Steve has been able to uh, escape and we get the benefit of his, uh, his uh, experience and expertise. Steve, great to have you. Great to have you on the show today. <laughs> uh, thanks so much. And um, obviously thanks to Renee and Megan uh, for hosting. And of course, Solomon Foundation is an old and dear friend of our church. It was great. Um, our newly pastor, Zach, and I got to come down and meet with Doug and grab lunch. Um, so we're now under new leadership as a church. I'm actually on a leave from the church while Zach establishes, and I'll be back in April to hopefully be as big as cheerleader. But uh, wonderful to be with you guys. And yeah, just my prayers I've been praying for today is that we can just offer some relief. That, that's what I'm hoping we can do today. Awesome. Well, Steve, why don't we go ahead and get started with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, I, I think most because I have so many friends on this call, I'll go real brief because most of us know each other. So I'm a local church pastor, I have been for 26 years. Um, I, I had an unusual experience when I was really young. My first ministry out of college was trauma and hospice chaplaincy. And uh, I was too young. I didn't have the grad degree and I had no previous chaplaincy experience, which were the three requirements to get the job. And they gave it to me anyway. And I, I remember at the time being bewildered that I got the job. I, I think I figured out pretty soon that God knew that I desperately needed the grounding and the training. I, I think I was on track to be very full of myself and uh, operating largely out of my false self. And, um, and there's nothing like death and trauma to strip all of that away. So before I went into ministry, I had a background in sales uh, because I had to pay my own way through college. Uh, my parents aren't believers. And also Aussies don't tend to pay for university. It's just a cultural thing. So I worked for three and a half years in sales and I was really successful in sales. I could sell anything to anybody. And so walking in as a chaplain to that very first death with screaming people, the family that were just unhinged with grief. I know many of you have had this kind of encounter. In, in that year, I had 300 of those encounters. That would just be a daily normal thing to walk into a room and either help somebody as they die or help the family after somebody died or help the family as they re receive the worst news of their life. That, that's kind of like the average day of the job. And there's just something about that that um, strips you of pretense um, you, you know, I, I've never liked those books that talk about, well, they didn't teach me this in Bible college. I just think that's a cheap shot against what's really a great thing. I, I had a fantastic Bible college education, but of course, no one, no one can teach you how to be present to someone in grief. And so what I had to learn is to notice myself. Um, what I'd like to do today is I've just got a couple of quick lessons. I'll share one out of the gate. We'll kind of see where Megan and Wes want to take this, but uh, I, I'd say the number one leadership lesson in my life is if I'm not aware of what's going on in me, I'm actually unable 
to connect to others and to God. Um, I'll just say that again, if I'm not aware of what's going on in me, I'm actually unable, or I would even say incapable of connecting to others and to God. Um, there's actually a science behind this. At the time, I didn't know any of the science. I've since studied the science of what's known as chronic anxiety. And the, the simple fact is when you are reactive, um, and we'll get to the things that make us reactive, there's five core generators of reactivity. But when you are reactive, another way to maybe say it in the Bible kind of sense is you're filled with yourself. You're so caught up in yourself. You're actually now in a false reality. You're no longer able to see what's true. And the first thing to go away when you're filled with reactivity is your awareness of God. That's the first thing that disappears. So you, you already know this. Like if you've ever had a rough day, like Frank was guiding us through the devotional about how do you get above criticism and how do you get above being really, I, I guess if I'd put words in Frank's mouth, how do you get above being reactive on social media? You, you already know this. When you're filled with reactivity, you suddenly feel like everything's on your shoulders. You forget that you're actually the child of the king of the universe who is present and at work. Um, so in the Bible, I'll just give you three people really quickly who were filled with reactivity, and then I'll show you what the authors of scripture or what that person said. So Jacob in Genesis 28, 16, Jacob has, uh, you know, fleeced his brother and, and huxted his dad, colluded with his mother as a family systems theorist. It's a gold mine. I, I could camp there the whole time. I'd love to do Esau's genogram one day. But Jacob's on the land. He's running to his uncle Laban, falls in love, of course, with his cousin. And then to paraphrase scripture, as Laban famously says, better to marry family than a stranger. Look, it's in the Bible. Don't come at me. But uh, Jacob's on the run and he's sleeping. He has a dream that's so vivid. He knows it's God. He's, he's reactive. He's so full of himself. I don't mean arrogant. I just mean caught up in himself that he actually says the following phrase, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. I think that is the verse of reactivity and chronic anxiety. Uh, and then of course, Gehazi, second King six, this one's a little more obscure. One of my favorite Gehazi stories. Those of you who are Gehazi nerds, there's always five or six of us on pastoral calls. Second Kings chapter six, he and Elisha are out fighting and the army has surrounded them, and they're going to die. And Gehazi starts soiling his pants. And Gehazi says to Elisha in 2 Kings 6, they've outnumbered us, we're going to die. Again, I'm paraphrasing. And Elisha prays for Gehazi, and Elisha says, Lord, show my servant what I can see that he cannot see. And the Lord kind of lifts the curtain of heaven, and Gehazi sees an angel army outnumbering the enemy that they're going to be safe. But because Gehazi was wrapped up in himself, he could not see the Lord. The final one, and then we'll move on. Luke 24, Cleopas, post-resurrection. Cleopas doesn't know that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's almost a comedy. There's not a whole lot of comedy in the Bible, so you kind of have to take it when you can get it. But it is funny. Cleopas and his companion, I think it's his wife, Mrs. Cleopas, they're walking along the road to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile journey. And Luke says they were kept from seeing Jesus. Now, our Reformed brothers and sisters, although let's face it, mostly our Reformed brothers, to be honest, they would say that uh, it was God's sovereignty that kept them from seeing Jesus. 
I think the clear meaning in the text is that their circumstance, not just around them, but their circumstance inside them was what was blocking them from seeing that Jesus was walking right alongside them, having a chat. So the whole goal of my work is to simply help you to notice what's going on in you and how it's filling the space of your soul where you no longer aware that God is with you. And then how can you switch it? How can you, First John 4, how can you let perfect love displace or cast out all fear? Um, so I think in that I lost the question that you asked, but that's kind of how I'd like to set up kind of our idea today, that if you can be first aware of yourself, you can actually open up your ability to connect to God and others. And let's kind of see where we go from there, I guess. Steve, that's a sensational start. Um, as, as pastors, we've, uh, we've been leading through historic times. We don't have a reference. Uh, um, none of us have been through a pandemic. The, the Christian church has never been uh, globally uh, interfered with like it has. Um, it's certainly been a time of, uh, of uh, op open the door to anxiety. And sometimes as leaders, we just have to, we just have to, uh, for, for one of them, a, a better term, a more sophisticated term, we just got to suck it up and keep carrying on. What happens, what happens to that anxiety um, within the life of a pastor when we just like stiff up a lip? We've got to, you know, one of the roles is, of leaders is we, in uncertain times, we have to un absorb the uh, the uncertainty and give the impression that we know what we're doing. Yeah. Can yeah. you comment on that? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I first would just like to point out the mild absurdity that the guy with the PsyD, the doctorate in ministry burnout is asking the guy who's hobby is systems theory about uh, this kind of stuff, but I'll, I'll move through that. Whereas you should be answering this and I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Um, I, I think uh, one of the challenges of being a pastor is I think we believe the lie that we're no longer human and we expect ourselves to be this different species that's known as a pastor. And I think sometimes what that feels like to us is we think we should then be the example. And in every real sense, I do believe we should be the example. I think that's biblical. I think that's what Paul modeled for us. But I think what I'd like to ask us is the example of what? And so uh, one guaranteed way to be filled with reactivity is to not know what to do. It's like one of the things I study in my work is what's called the universal sources of anxiety. There's 31 universal situations that if you're in that situation, it will generate reactivity in you. And one of them is not knowing what to do. Another one is ambiguity, which I know is similarly related. And so for the last two years, we have been in both of those, ambiguity and not knowing what to do. The other thing for pastors is no matter what decision we make, we know we're going to get hit by somebody, right? So the whole mask, no mask thing, all of that stuff, people who are deciding to follow the CDC, people who are deciding to not follow the CDC and whatever you decide to do, somebody in your congregation uh, believes that what you need is to hear from them about it. And so th that would be a third simple source is, is criticism. And so I think the problem is if we just take it and take it and take it, we will 
a burnout, truly, we will suddenly go off the deep end or we'll pick up a secret habit. Um, I think the better role is to remember that your job as a pastor is to be exactly human-sized, that what pastors are is we are exactly human-sized human beings who has the spirit, the miraculous spirit of God with us. And so what we did in our church is we were very upfront when we didn't know what to do. Uh, it, not in a way that confuses the congregation, but in a way that sets their expectation for what it looks like that a human is leading them. So I, I don't mean to say that we get up and we cry and we say, oh, we really, we don't know what to do. It's just a simple idea that we very soberly say, here's the decision we're making. It might be wrong because we've never had to make this decision before, but we've done our best. And quite frankly, everybody, we're really not that interested in hearing from those of you who are trying to take us on. If you would like to join our group that researches and discusses, we will take applications. Uh, and that's just a way of helping your church realize, to be frank, I know we're recording this, so I won't be too blunt. We really don't want to hear another stupid opinion. We have plenty of our own stupid opinions. And, and yet we're also not saying, look, it's my way or the highway. We're just trying to communicate here is the path we're taking. We might be wrong. And oftentimes what Tom and I, my executive pastor, when we'd be sending out the announcements, we would say to people, listen, it's entirely possible that in three months time, we'll come up and say, hey, we were wrong. That's okay. You know, God is good. God's with us. So I don't know if that helps, Wes, but I, I think I would encourage pastors to relieve themselves of the pressure of getting it right and the pressure of appeasing everybody and I think the way you do that is be human-sized and clear. Um, and then you just let the chips fall there where they may, right? And, and if, if God is sovereign, who I bet my life on that reality, um, God, will, God will guide. I like that. Did you say uh, relieve yourself of the need to get it right? Yeah, I think making mistakes is completely acceptable. If I mean, I'm talking leadership mistakes. I'm not talking ethical character-based mistakes. You know, like I'm not saying, oh, if you have an affair, then who cares? I'm talking about we're going to wear masks. We're not going to wear masks. We're opening the building. We're locking up. Those are, those are not ethical-based decisions. And yet a lot of the congregation and their anxiety because they're filled with reactivity. What happens with anxiety is we can't carry it, so we dump it on each other. So it's that chronic anxiety is actually the only anxiety that's contagious, so what a lot of leaders have done is they've caught the congregation's group anxiety and the leader has become the scapegoat uh, where people feel safe to dump it on the pastor because if the pastor's up there every week looking like they've always got it together and going home and hurting and grumbling to their spouse, then the congregation thinks that the pastor can be a punching bag. I've had a number of people in my church say, well, you can take it. And I've had to say, no, I can't. Like that hurts. And it's very vulnerable to be human, but it really puts the anxiety back where it belongs on the person generating it. So that's just another simple rule for your pastors is if you can notice who's generating the anxiety, sometimes the reason they're generating it is because you're letting them get away with it. And I don't mean in vindictive or revenge, but just in a very sober, kind way putting the anxiety back where it belongs on the person generating it. And so like I've had people where they treat me like a punching bag and I'll say, I, I bet you wouldn't 
talk to me that way if you knew how much that hurt and how much I carried it at home and how hard I have to work to be present to my kids. And I had one guy particularly, he, he was so caught off guard that I would be vulnerable. It was very vulnerable for a man to say to another man, you hurt me. I, I remember once my wife and I, this may be a bit graphic for this, but we'll give it a shot. My wife and I were getting a couple's massage and it was two dudes. So I had a dude rubbing on me. She had a dude rubbing on her. And Lisa's dude was all gentle and tender. And, oh, I hope you're having a lovely day. My dude was killing me. He was like hurting me so bad because he's thinking to himself, the worst thing for a man is another man to say, that's not hard enough, go harder. And then, of course, as the dude getting rubbed on, I, don't, I can't say, you're hurting me like a little crybaby. And so at the end of the couple's massage, Lisa's like, oh, that was lovely. And I had to go to like the chiropractor. And Lisa said, why didn't you just tell him it hurt? I'm like, do you know anything about being a man? I would never do that. So all that to say, there was a little diversion, is to, for me to stand in front of a man who's taking shots at me and say that hurts. This one guy, when I told him that, he actually was quite caught back. And he looked at me and he said, what are you like? What are you, soft or something? And at that point, you just have to chase him all the way to the bottom of the hill. And so I said, yeah. I'm really soft. Now, what's he going to do now? Ball's in his court. He, now he has a choice. He can bully me, which some of your congregation do, or he can really wrestle with the way he behaves. And in his, to his great credit, he came back to me later and we connected and he said, look, I was, really, I was really surprised to hear you say that. And I went home and made fun of you to my wife. And my wife said, honey, I've been trying to get your attention for years but you just don't take me seriously like you're really cutting when you talk so it's a counterintuitive move for pastors because we have this feeling that we should be the example and the assumptions we make is we should be strong we should have it together we should know what to do these are all what a su superhuman does but what a leader does is a leader simply does your best to listen to god take the counsel of your people and you make the call. I think what a leader is, is not strong. I just think we're responsible. I think that's our job. Our job is to be responsible. I'll make the decision, or in my case, if one of my staff makes the decision, I'm responsible. But that's not the same thing as being strong or always getting it right. And our chronic anxiety shows up when we have these expectations about ourselves that God himself does not have of us. So I, I guess I'll leave it there and, and kind of see where we want to go. So I, I have a question. Um, there's definitely like anxieties that happen throughout personal lives, like whether you're a leader or not, people face it. Um, and that is different than leadership anxiety, right? So my question is where, how do you identify leadership anxiety versus just general anxiety? Is the line blurred for leaders? Yeah, that's a great um, question, Megan. How yeah, do we identify a those? It's a great question. So leadership anxiety is just my colloquial name. I just made up a name, leadership anxiety, for the clinical term called chronic anxiety. So any of you guys can Google chronic anxiety, and it's I see it in the chat. Tim put it in here. It's from a theory called systems theory. Now, there are all kinds of anxieties. We won't dive into it. Dr. Wes, of course, is a guru in a lot of this too. But there is trauma. That's a form of anxiety. There's anxiety that requires a psychiatric medicine. Um, there's grief is a form of anxiety. Um, chronic anxiety is generated by assumptions, expectations, 
and false beliefs. And this is why as a pastor, I'm fanatical about chronic anxiety, assumptions, expectations, and false beliefs. Because if Jesus sets us free, which I have bet my life on, my whole life is bet on the truth that Jesus sets me free. Um, if that's true, and chronic anxiety is built on false assumptions, that's why it's hard to be filled with chronic anxiety and aware of God at the same time, because one puts us in a falsehood and one sets us free into truth. So in that sense, Megan, um, anytime you are operating out of a false assumption, a false expectation, or a false belief, chronic anxiety scientifically is generated in you, but it gets worse when you're a leader or a parent, um, then other people's false expectations and assumptions on you get generated in you. That's why chronic anxiety is the only form of anxiety that's contagious because our assumptions and expectations of each other bump into each other. And then in any group of people, reactivity increases. It's what Frank laid out for us when he mentioned the Facebook post where he saw he's, I think Frank said, you never see somebody de-escalating. It always escalates. I can explain that through the science of chronic anxiety or reactivity. So whether it's your workplace or your home place, if you're in the regular habit of being around the same group of people all the time, you're going to generate uh, reactivity patterns with each other. So I don't mean to freak you out, those of you who are married, but when you're married and you fight, the way you fight is predictable to a system theorist like myself. Uh, what you fight about changes, money, how to raise the kids, sex, but the way you fight is predictable. And I, I might even say to be provocative, boring to a systems theorist, because it's so predictable. So for example, one of you starts the fight over here, the other one escalates it by maybe raising your voice. Now it's a little hot in the kitchen for this one. So this one needs time to process and space. And then this one quotes the Bible, don't let the sun go down on your anger and tries to resolve before it's ready. That pattern is predictable in any marriage. And in the same way, you can walk into any staff meeting and predict the same recurring patterns in a staff. So it's almost always the first person that has the, fir the, the first word. It's always, for example, Jim, that even though he's not in charge, the way he gives his decision carries more weight than Sally. It's always the three silent people that don't speak up in the meeting, but then they have their own secret meeting after the meeting. These are predictable patterns that are evidence of, of anxiety in a system or a group. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out your assumptions and your expectations about yourself that simply aren't true. And this is deeper than today, but what we usually do with people is we help them get into the story they tell themselves in the inner critic. And then we train people on how to feel when somebody is placing an assumption on you, uh, like when a critic calls from the church and they expect you to act a certain way because you're a pastor. Um, so, for example, as a pastor, when people meet me at my church, they know me as a pastor before they know me as a human. Now, over time, they get to know me as a human. But when they come into my church, because I'm a pastor, they are placing on me all their expectations and assumptions on what a pastor is. Now, I'm not making the case that this is bad. S some of their expectations and assumptions are fantastic. 
and in my case, at least the majority of my church are wonderful, wonderful people. It's usually just the minority that are the loudest voice, but particularly those of you who are people pleasers or you can't handle conflict, you spend way too much of your mental real estate appeasing the minority and neglecting the majority. For example, these are just some like ways that a system series would come in and help you kind of break free of assumptions and expectations. Steve, uh, I have the the metaphor, the analogy that we can absorb us. You know, we like to have a reservoir, and we just absorb all those irritants that uh, gradually over time fill up that reservoir. How how do we notice that we're getting close to the reservoir reservoir being full? And this is about as much anxiety that I can contain. Oh yeah. And then I've got a follow-up question. Yeah, I'll, I'll be real brief because I can feel myself kind of going long here, Wes. But I, I think the general rule of thumb is your body doesn't know how to lie to you. And so I think, first of all, and again, um, Wes, I'm trying to think of the six stations on your train to burnout. I think that's one of the early stations for you. So we just break mm-hmm. it down in my system of a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening body. And what tends to happen is... We, we get filled with reactivity before we know that we're anxious. So by the time we finally know it, we're really, really anxious. Mm. And just as a gender stereotype, this is very classic for type A men, which is how I describe myself. I'm so busy going after the mission, I'm oblivious to how anxious I am. But if you can learn to actually notice, so, so what you have to do is learn to be curious about yourself and you have to learn to be kind to yourself. And I find both of those to be very hard to do. Um, You have to be curious about yourself. And so for me, it's a spinning mind. And when I intervene is when I notice that I'm going to bed thinking about it. And then as I wake up, I'm already thinking about it. That's time for me to to have an intervention. Because if I don't stop, I'll just go on the treadmill of reactivity. So your body is first. And then the second best tool I know is ask somebody who loves you. Just pick someone in your life that loves you, that you feel safe around, and just ask them the following question. Just say, how do you know I'm anxious before I know I'm anxious? And then just believe them. That's, that's all you have to do. Just take their word for it. And those of you who have kids, by the time your kids are eight, they can answer that question for you. If you're a safe person for them, uh, my daughter's 15 now, but when she was nine, I had trained her to tell me that I was anxious because I didn't know it. So my nine-year-old would come up to me and say, dad, I think you must be anxious right now, which was very, that's, that's a way you you'll grow is when you're being schooled by your child on something about yourself. You don't know. So that's how I would start. I think. Uh, That's brilliant, Steve. Uh, Your body doesn't know how to lie. I've had uh, pastors contact me because they've actually put themselves in hospital with panic attacks. Yeah. And, and, uh, and they are driven because they think they're having a heart attack. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I love that. Your body doesn't lie. Uh, somebody who loves you, uh, how do you know I'm anxious before I know it? Those are great tools. I'm going to open it up to, uh, to all the pastors here. If you've got a, a question uh, for Steve, who is a subject matter, matter expert on the area of anxiety. Steve, you actually know more about this field than what I do. You've di- gone a deeper dive, and, and I respect you like anything on this, uh, um, this, this subject of anxiety. So 
I just wish we had a longer time. But anybody here have any questions for Steve on, on this subject? Yeah, I don't have a question, Dr. West. Uh, go, Brian. Yeah, I don't have a question, just a comment. Um, Steve and I met several years ago at one of the Solomon Fund um, events, and then uh, I heard about his book and all that through Kerry Newhoff and jumped on the book, and then I've, I've signed up for his um, his website and all the teaching he does. And I, I'd like to say I've worked through tons of them, but the ones I've worked through have been a lifesaver. And so I just want to give a thumbs up and a heads up to jump on Steve's stuff. You guys will learn a ton. It's well worth the investment of time and money and energy just to – help keep balance. So Steve, I appreciate your ministry and everything you're doing. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, it was great to meet you. Uh, Steve, just just really quickly, tell us about your uh, the group that you have and how people can participate in that group. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Brian, Brian's a member, so he can talk more about it. Uh, I'll put it in the chat. It's called capablelife.me. Um, capable, C-A-P being the first three letters. Our goal is calm, aware, and present. So you go from being reactive to calm, aware, and present. And Jesus of Nazareth is the preeminent example of calm, aware, presence. You can actually do a fascinating study of the Gospels and how Jesus interacts with reactivity and chronic anxiety. But what it is, is it's just a series of very brief videos. I mean, obviously, I've been really popcorning with you guys, trying to give you some tangible tools. It's eight-minute to ten-minute videos with self-assessments. And then if you want to, there's also Zoom groups um, there's discussion forum. There's a whole kind of back end of interaction, but the heart of it is these self-paced eight to 10 minute videos with self-assessments. And it's really taking you from noticing it in you. And then we get deep into, okay, how do you walk into a group and notice it in a group? And how do you help a group? Um, we have a whole thing on criticism and we have a whole thing on what do you do when you hit resistance? When, you, when you're trying to lead change and you hit resistance, Systems theory, what happens is oftentimes your next move unintentionally builds extra resistance. So we have a whole thing on how do you dissolve resistance to actually bring about change. So I put it in the chat. Anyone can check it out there. Uh, Steve, thanks for that. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't want this to be an infomercial, but um, all the leaders out there, we have somebody in, in the restoration movement uh, leadership who really is... Uh, being recognized as an expert right across uh, denominational boundaries, uh, uh, right across America and and internationally. So it's just really good that we've got, you know, just uh, somebody with this type of expertise within our our team of people. So uh, uh, yeah, I'd really encourage you to go to capablelife.me uh, and it's really, really inexpensive to join that. And uh, so I would encourage you to do that. Any other questions we have out there? Just unmute and fire away. I, I would pipe in and again, not with a question, but thank you, Steve, for today in the book. Um, we um, we're actually taking our staff through the book right now. And uh, I think we're on chapter three today. But I think that's something that has been amazing for our staff. But I would also warn you guys, if you do it, it, it does open up Pandora's box because um, it causes for some real deep, deep uh, inward looking. And but it helps. It's really already in three weeks helped our staff understand each other better and therefore uh, minister better. So thank you. It's awesome, uh, Rob. Yeah, we also at Capable Life um, have a staff plan. 
So you can just email me about that, but we have a way for a whole team to sign up and actually go through the eight, eight minute videos together, which is actually a little more manageable than the book. The book takes a lot on each chapter for sure. Steve, Tim Spivey asked a question. He said, to what extent do you think the great resignation is anxiety driven? I think it's a huge factor. I mean, um, systems theory has a concept called societal regression. It's a simple idea that, that if anxiety is contagious, that we all keep catching it. And then a whole society as a culture gets more anxious. Like we're one, we're one giant family. So I think it has a lot to do with it. And then I think some of it also has to do with it. We, we get to live in a digital age where people can provide for their family digitally. And so they're ditching traditional work to try it. I think there's also some of that. Uh, what breaks my heart, it, you know, I've been in local church leadership 26 years. I still am in it. It's, it's the passion of my life. It breaks my heart when pastors leave when they don't have to. I, I know this is the heartbeat of Solomon Foundation. Like you, you won't find another group as committed to pastor health than TSF because they know that, that the transition of the pulpit is such a huge thing in the life of the church. So that, that side of the great resignation, I think, has me greatly concerned. Uh, I know Wes is doing a lot of work in that mm -hmm. area. I'm, I'm doing a lot of unofficial work where I'm like, I don't know. I don't know that God's calling you to leave as much as you just need to find a different way to manage. Um, yeah. Uh, fantastic, Steve. We've, we have come up to time here and uh, we need to have you back on again because uh, we only got a few, uh, a few kernels popped here today. And I know that you, uh, uh, you have a lot more to share. So would you be willing to come on some stage oh, uh, down the line? Yeah. Love, your love this group. I've, I've always felt bad because our church has staff meetings Tuesday mornings. So I've barely been able to come, but I'm on leave right now. So I'm free at least till April. And then of course, I'm sure Zach had let me ditch a meeting to help you guys for sure. Uh, fantastic. Well, Steve, we really, on behalf of the Solomon Foundation and uh, Megan and myself and Renee and Doug, we really appreciate what you bring um, to the table in terms of uh, ministry leader well-being. And so uh, thank you so much for uh, for investing in us today.